What's going on, Asymmetry? Hey, had a conversation with a true gentleman in the art of bonsai. David Niddle has been contributing his artistry uh, to the display stands that so many of us use, cherish, and admire at exhibitions across North America. And I've, I've never really, although David and I have had conversations in passing at bonsai events and, uh, you know, have, have always, I think, respected each other mutually, never really had a chance to understand how he got into woodworking, how he became such a prominent and profound icon in terms of the stands that he makes that are, that are highly sought after and utilized so much. And it was really wonderful uh, to kind of follow his journey and have him break it down for us. But I think the most beautiful part of this conversation is really when uh, when David starts to talk about the mastery of his craft towards the end of the podcast and the nuances that he applies to his stand making that makes his pieces so special. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. David Niddle, everybody. Hey, great to see you. Yeah, good to see you. Look at all the tools on the wall behind you. <laughs> Jeez, you look like a woodworker or something. <laughs> yeah, oh. I'm in my shop. Yeah, beautiful. Wow, so cool. The hand of a craftsman and the tools of the trade. Very, very interesting. How are you? I'm I'm fine. Yeah. Real, really good. Yeah. Yeah. What's yeah. what's uh what's the fall like in your neck of the woods? What's the what's the weather situation? How does winter come rolling in where you're at? Um, well, we're in northern Vermont. Um and we're having days in the uh, it's 50 days in about 50 and nights around 30. We had a 28 last week was our first frost, which is about a month late and a, uh, a month late. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. We usually get, we usually have our first frost uh, end of uh, September mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but we get a beautiful fall. So it's, it's mountain weather up and down, you know, you know, mountain weather. So, uh, yeah. uh, there was some snow, um, I can see mount, the mountaintops from, from my shop, and there was uh, snow up there uh, this, um, this morning. It's supposed to snow some more tonight. Wow. A couple flurries here, nothing, nothing at this elevation. And what elevation are you at? I'm at about 800 feet. Uh -huh. The mountains here are, I'm in a mountain valley on the top of a hill and surrounded by mountains uh, that are about, mostly about 4,000 feet. And that's tree level here. Interesting. That far north, 4,000 feet is tree line. Yeah. yeah. Oh, unbelievable. Yeah, it's, it's quite different than the west where the, the tree lines, you know, eight, nine, 10,000 feet. So. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or even further south. I mean, I feel like it, that was one of the shocking things when I moved to Oregon was I didn't realize the farther north you go, the lower tree line gets. Uh, but e even here, tree line is significantly lower than it is in Colorado, uh, which is which is kind of a fun little thing to experience. Gives you the impression of big, bigger mountains than they actually are. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, when you know when I speak about mountains, uh, you know, I have a lot of friends in the West, and you know, I'll say, oh, they'll say, oh, how high are your mountains? I'll say, I'm about four thousand feet, and they they laugh at me. Right. But you know, when the valleys. 500 and the mountains right there and it's 4,000 you have that 3,000 feet of vertical rise um you know it feels like mountains yes sir yes sir yeah now have you always uh have you always lived in vermont or where were you born and raised where'd you where did you come to existence i, I was born and raised in uh, north central pennsylvania mm. about 
you know Jim Doyle's place. Yeah. About an hour and a half north of there in the mountains. Wow. Small town called Williamsport. And uh, I, I, was, I was raised uh, a few miles outside of town, kind of foresty hill country. Wow. That- and moved, moved to Steamboat Springs, Colorado when I was 20, 19 or 20. And lived there for a till uh, early eighties, probably around nineteen eighty one, eighty two, and then I moved to the Philadelphia area. Unbelievable, unbelievable! You you lived in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, uh, when when uh, my parents lived in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Yeah, we talked about that one time. Yeah, right. I, I don't. I don't remember that I ever met them, but uh, did you know? Could have ran into one. It was a small town at that time. Yeah. Did you know Bullock's uh, Country Western Clothing Store? Bullock's Bill. Oh Bullock's? yeah. Okay, so my dad ran the the Bullock's Country Western Clothing Store in Steamboat Springs while you lived there. Huh? That's I, I may hilarious. have lost something from him. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, because yeah. Ste- Steamboat was in 1981. Steamboat was a wide spot in the road, more or less. I mean, it was a mountain town for sure, but it was ranching country. Yes, the ski area was there, and uh, so it was very seasonal. There was uh, very very little uh, summer tourism. Uh, it was ranching, and that uh, those oil shale product uh, uh, fields were were really big right. just west of there, Craig and that area. Yeah, still and still still going. Yeah, um, and what happened was uh, we were rolling along. I worked construction, I, um, and. Uh, I was kind of a ski bum life, uh, being in the winter, working in a restaurant, work construction when the weather allowed. Nice. And uh, there was a downturn in the economy. Uh, we had the oil crisis, mm. and and then there was a, a downturn in the economy, and it really hit that area really hard. Uh, real estate dropped by 50%, and uh, so that was the end of the Construction industry for a little while. Yeah, and uh, so I got a job offer back in uh, Philadelphia area. I was interested in doing woodworking, uh, building homes, and doing a little bit of carpentry woodworking related to that. And uh, so I, uh, somebody that had a vacation home in Steamboat Springs, wanted to renovate their home in the Philadelphia area. They wanted to redo a kitchen, build cabinets, all new doors, and uh, so um, we were, didn't have anything to do in steamboats to earn a living. So, so took that offer and here I am. <laughs> and, and was that the first, was that the first interest that you had in woodworking or was that the, just the first opportunity you had to engage with woodworking on an, on another level? That was really the first real interest. Um, we were building, um, uh, log homes and, uh, uh, I got interested in woodworking, doing that. There was, some, uh, there was one home where they hired a cabinet maker, built a lot of the things, and I got interested. Uh, he built, also, he had a business where he built some furniture. So that was my first interest. So this uh, uh, job that I took in, well, it was actually, you know, I went into business for myself to build these cabinets and doors and I wasn't working for somebody. I was a client. And uh, so I set a, a shop there. And that was my first real interest. And uh, when 
as I was doing that, I, I got another job. Uh, so I built uh, full-size furniture and built-in cabinets, doors. But you've never done it before. I'd never done it before. No. And you were just like, yeah, no, I'll just set up a shop and, and, and do this as a profession. Right. That's figured cr- it out. That's crazy. That is crazy. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah. I had no idea. Wow. Did you, uh, how did you even know how to price out a job like that? Like, or, or did it not go very well? It, it, uh, uh, the, the person, I, I was friendly with the person and it, it went very well. Uh, they were gen- very generous to me. Um, they let me build them on a time and material basis. I didn't have to quote it. And, wow. uh, so there was a there was a level of trust there, mm-hmm. which I was very fortunate. That opportunities like that are rare. Yeah, uh, in in build. So very fortunate. We had done work for this uh, this uh, family in Steamboat Springs on their vacation home there. So there was already some uh, familiarity and and trust built. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So there was a connection from it was a connection from Colorado. Now, now growing up in Pennsylvania and in that region, were you surrounded by pitch pine and the maples and and what like what was the flora around you in your childhood? It was uh, it was uh, not pitch pine, but white pine. Okay. Uh, the eastern white pine and. Uh, uh, Combination of hardwood forest, so it was maple, ash, oak, cherry, uh, some walnut, um, uh, birch. Uh, then, as you went a little bit higher elevation, then you saw more pine. There was a lot of hemlock. Mm. Uh, beautiful forest area there. Yeah, yeah. Is that and has that landscape? changed pretty significantly from what you remember growing up there or is it still pretty much the same it's pretty much the same the 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 river valley where the town is um has really grown up but the um the mountains north of there are pretty much the same although i haven't been back for my brother's still there i visit him occasionally it's probably been four or five years since i've been there Mm. and but uh outside of the the main valley where the population is, it's pretty much the same. Yeah. Yeah. So you, so you relocated to Philadelphia, you dove into to woodwork pretty heavily. And has that been the consistent trend then? I mean, did you find a passion or did you find a craft? Like what did the woodwork, what, what did I, it become? I, I did. I found a passion in, in making furniture mm. and, uh, um, I had to figure that out. I, I was, I bought, Every book I could get my hands on, there wasn't the internet at that time. And uh, I was influenced by James Krenoff. Have you ever heard of him? Yeah, sure. He, uh, uh, College of the Redwoods in Fort Bragg. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm one of the founders there. Uh, heavily influenced by him. So my, my work started uh, seeing that influence, the, the Scandinavian uh, clean lines, kind of uh, simple, simple elegance thing. I took a, a course with uh, uh, Sam Maloof. Are you familiar with Sam Maloof? Yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, and that was my, that was a real eye-opener. Uh, I was kind of struggling along figuring this, figuring this thing out and uh, kind of by trial and error. And uh, I took the weekend 
I think it was three days of course. He was in, uh, in New York. Uh, the facility there did a three-day seminar and took that and was an eye-opener. That really changed for me. I still use a lot of the techniques that I learned from him. And then the, uh, after that, uh, uh, I was uh, about 40 minutes from uh, uh, George Nakajima's shop. And um, that's where the Oriental Japanese thing came from. He would, he would be open. He'd had his studio open um, on Saturdays to, you know, mainly he was trying to attract clients and, and you know, sell his work. Uh, but he had, it was almost like a museum. It's fabulous. And I used to go up there once or twice a month and hang around. And he was really kind uh, uh, to see that I was really interested. And uh, he didn't so much teach me much, but just being around him and hearing him talk to his clients and seeing his work and examining his work just, just enlightening. Yeah. Are you familiar with this book, Soul of the Tree? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and so that started uh, um, the live edge thing. Yeah. And I started, um, you know, I didn't want to copy George's pieces because he was in business and that wouldn't be quite uh, appropriate. So I, uh, uh, but I started, I remember a kitchen that I made that was really Krenoff. Uh, influence was very, and uh, I incorporated some live edge little details to it, and it came out really great. The owner loved it, and so I started doing that with uh, kind of modern furniture with a little bit of live edge accents here and there, and uh, I still do that today with uh, you know traditional Japanese tables that I make with some live edge. Yeah, that came from George. And and I I had no idea that you were like in the bowels of of you know modern woodworking in terms of this exposure. I guess we've never really talked about it. But I mean, Sam, it, arguably Sam Maloof, George Nakashima, and uh, Wharton Eshrick, you know, kind of form this like triad of of pioneers of woodworking, and specifically. George Nakashima with the Live Edge movement. I mean, I even when I see a Nakashima piece today and you see how influential his style was in the Live Edge uh, utilization and, and valuing of the, the nature and soul of the tree and the Live Edge approach, it, it is tough for anyone to duplicate his sensibility. There's an intangible aesthetic to his work, the thickness of the slab, the way the base connects, the the way he book matches or joins two pieces and makes an you know extensive conference table. People can use live edge, but they can't use live edge the way George Nakashima used live edge. Not to say it's not it's just not the same thing. He had his own thing that he did that still holds true today in his work. It's like um, you really saw brilliance there. I, I would imagine that would have been very influential to be around. Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And you're, and you're right. Uh, uh, I made some pieces for myself and friends uh, that were copies of his and uh, not to sell, but just to sure. you know, 
yeah. have and, and give away. And you could tell my work from George's really easily. It just, it was a sensibility um, in proportion and from piece to piece, it would change. Right. And the, the, the detail of the little details that he would put in that were so subtle, you had to, you, you looked at the piece and you knew it was marvelous and you really had to study it to understand why, you know, what, what, what makes that stand out from uh, the copy that I made? Right. And it was these little, little details. One, one of the closest I ever came is in our living room. It's a, uh, a live edge coffee table. And uh, I made it just, um, just a few years ago. And uh, I, used to, I couldn't figure out how, what kind of base to put on this thing. And I finally said, well, I'm also just coffee George. He gets it. And, uh, it was uh, it, it came out, and I, I realized that oh, okay, this is as close as I've ever come to uh, the feel that George had, and uh, I, I struggle to tell you uh, to to uh, explain it exactly, but uh, it's just this sensibility that he had uh, of what to do with each piece. It's yeah, I don't even know how you put words to it either. I mean, I'm sure there's been a lot of there have been a lot of intelligent people that have tried to, but when did you when did you really start to because once you once you talked about James uh Krenov and and the really sleek Danish style of furniture, you it, it was like a light bulb went off in my head, like, ah, oh, yes, this is this is the the work of David Niddle, at least as I have experienced your uh, stands as they're utilized for bonsai. Just really, really uh, stunningly clean, simple, um, but beautiful and elegant work. I like if I had to just sort of sum up, I I haven't seen work from you that's ever uh, at least, you know, and that's this is minimal exposure because I haven't seen a lot of your, your full-size furniture, um, but in your bone-size stands and whatnot, I, I have never seen uh, massive or thick or chunky or heavy. That has never been, those are never ways to describe the work that you do. And do you think all of that still started with uh, with that taste for the Danish aesthetic, even through this exposure to all of these other woodworkers? Uh. Yes, yes, in a way it did, but I, I have to uh, say I have made some junky things. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when I first started making bonsai tables, uh, uh, it took me a while to, to understand uh, the proportion that they should be, and uh, I made some chunky things. And, uh, <laughs> well, I have. And, and every once in a while, one turns up in an exhibition, and I like cringe and say, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> yeah, that's also, I, that's got to be rewarding. Going to any exhibition in North America, you're going to see a David Niddle stand at this point. At this point, you've had that kind of influence and, and contribution to Bonsai in North America. Uh, I would imagine seeing that, I, I don't know what that's like for you, but I, I have to believe that that's very rewarding to see so much of your work under you know, some very progressive and advanced pieces of bonsai art in North America. Oh, yes, it, it, it's very rewarding. And uh, I love bonsai. That's uh, that's why I'm doing this. I, I could have probably had a more financially successful career staying in, uh, in building furniture. But uh, 
I love bonsai and, and uh, I love the community. I love the people. And, um, um, and so this is what I do. And, and I, I still would like to make some smaller furniture pieces, but I just don't have time. Yeah. That's the, and 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 you also are, are pretty prolific bonsai practitioner too, right? I mean, you collect, you you do work. You've got your own bonsai collection that you maintain in addition to the stands that you make. Do I understand that correctly? Yes. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. I uh, uh, we moved from the Philadelphia area in 1987. Um, we were uh, outside near Valley Forge Park. And over the few years we were there, um, five years we were there, we watched the suburbs expand right over top of us. We were basically, you know, it was a farmland and small towns and the the suburbs of Philadelphia just rolled right over us. And uh, my first son, our first son had been born and we just, we're, we're, uh, my wife, my first wife and I were both, uh, small town country people, and we just didn't want to raise our kids in that uh, in that environment, and we didn't really want to live there anymore. And so uh, we moved to Erie, Pennsylvania, and it was a good place for me to locate. There was well, where we moved was great school district, uh, family area, and uh, we had some friends there. We used to go visit, and uh, I met. Um, Lynn Perry also. Did you know Lynn Perry or no. did you know of her? Did no, you know of didn't, her? Mm, didn't oh, know. you don't. Mm-mm. Bill's first bonsai teacher. Bill Valvin's first bonsai teacher. I'm sorry, what was the name again? Lynn Perry. Oh, interesting. Yeah. No, I've never even, I've never heard anything about oh, this. Oh, yeah. Uh, she, um, if I have this right, Bill could tell you the story better than I could, but um, she was uh, worked for the State Department in Tokyo, in, in Japan. And I think her brother was, was involved in the State Department there. But she was from Erie. Her parents had a business there. And uh, she got a degree in uh, horticulture, I think, from the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, somehow, probably through her brother, ended up. And she met Mr. Murata. And uh, she was almost became a member of, the fam- of Murata's family. He, her first book was actually his book that he dictated to her in uh, to have her write it in English. Uh, I can't recall the name of it. I can see it. It's blue hardback. I've book. got a copy of it right behind me. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I would think I would think that you would know this. I must be uh, sending up some signals in, in you right now. I'm like, yeah, you, the light, the connections. Well, when you said Murata, and and then just thinking about. Bill Valvanis's collection to to the Murata Garden, and interestingly enough, just out of the blue, I had somebody reach out to me the other day and say, you know, their um, father of of one of our family friends or grandfather of one of our family friends had had been very active in travel in Japan and had always gone to this garden. And the gentleman's name started with an M. And I said, was it uh, Mr. Murata's garden? Yes, that's the one, Mr. Murata's garden. And it, it seemed like it seemed like. Uh, Mr. Murata was very open to uh, to foreigners having exposure to bonsai through his facility, and 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 really carved out a significant um, level of influence based on the fact that he was welcoming to uh, to to foreigners seeing his his bonsai and and his practice. 
Yes, that, that, that's my understanding also from Lynn. Lynn and I became very good friends. Uh, we lived about half a mile apart. And uh, uh, that was my first real introduction to bonsai. My wife had bought me a, a juniper for Father's Day a couple of years prior to that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 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 that was, uh, uh, I, I kept it for quite a while. Nice, and, nice. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, I was always into plants. You know, I grew up, grew up in a, uh, a farm. So, um, you know, uh, a kind of a subsistence farm. They didn't farm for living. They farmed for their food. My uh, uh, grand grandfather uh, worked in a in a, uh, a business, and so that's how they earned their living was from his income. But they had uh, you know all kinds of fruit trees and a huge two acre vegetable garden, and they canned and froze. And, everything like that. So I was, anyway, I was interested and always interested in plants, kind of understood how plants grew. And uh, so Lynn introduced me to bonsai. I met her through uh, her, my, my friend's mother was her best friend. And so I met, met her through that connection and he introduced me to Bill Valvanis. Uh-huh. He took me up to Rochester one day and, and said, you know, Hey, you're going to meet this guy. And, uh, because I was doing woodworking. And uh, uh, so then that's how I met Bill. And Bill's really my mentor. Uh, this was in the late 80s. And, uh, my, uh, Bill's had a, just a tremendous influence on me. I, I wouldn't be where I am today in the bonsai uh, community without him. And, and, and by, the, by the, you said this is the mid 80s? This was uh, 87 when we moved there. I met Lynn right away and got interested in bonsai right away. So it's probably 88 or 89 when I met Bill. And I do recall that we traveled. Uh, he talked me into going, building some things and taking them to the Golden State Show uh, convention in uh, 1990. I stole it from that. And uh, so I used to travel with Bill uh, to the um, conventions and room with him and Watch his vendor table, so I because he could stand still. Right, right, and and by that time, his operation, uh, the International Bonsai Arboretum, I believe he call, it's called, is it was it was in full it was in full go mode. I mean, he was he was rocking and rolling. He was teaching a lot. He was having those influences, and you, and you just kind of integrated into the community that was forming there. Right, right, yeah. Bill is pretty much doing. Um, then what he's doing now, uh, you know, he's teaching. Uh, he had the magazine then. He did his September uh, uh, Symposia every year. Um, um, so, yeah, it wasn't much different. The studio, uh, I built a tokenoma in his studio. That was oh. one of the first projects that, <laughs> that I did with him. So, yeah, so I, was, uh, I am a bonsai practitioner. Um, not as serious as I'd like to be. I just don't have the time and it's, it is time consuming, but we do uh, some collecting and uh, there's some marvelous uh, material to collect around here. We work with, uh, uh, right now, we, we, Todd was coming uh, twice a year. We're working with Todd and uh, now Mark Arpeg. Oh, uh, nice. We have a study group with uh, Mark. Um, six of us and Mark comes three times a year 
We work with him. And other than that, it's a very small bonsai community. So, anyway, Mark, I mean, Mark, I, I, uh, I did a, a walkthrough of the national show. There was a 3D, there was like a 3D um, walkthrough and Bill and um, the gentleman who shot it, his, whose name escapes me, and I apologize. Uh, he was... Uh, so- Jay- Jason, Jason Hedenberg? Yeah, yeah, yes, Jason. Yes. So, yes. so cool for him to let us use that. But man, one of the compositions that struck me, and it's it's a composition I've seen multiple times, and each time I experience it, is is Mark Arpag's little medium-sized uh, eastern white cedar. Just, just the most... Yes. Brilliant little tree, always presented in a in a really really high level manner. He, he Mark Mark's artistry always strikes me in in the national yeah. show exhibitions when I went the symposiums uh, that Bill used to have. What what was it what was it like uh, when because I have to believe when Bill Valvanis in the nineties that that was probably he was ramping up or starting to crescendo in terms of. The influence he was having in the northeastern United States and the student corps and the enthusiasm forming around them, because you see so many brilliant trees, deciduous and broadleaf trees, but also some coniferous material that were created, and, and a lot of that community are students of Bill Valvanis. What was that like to be a part of that? Uh, it was it was fantastic. It was just uh, awe inspiring for me. Yeah, I was I was. Uh, uh, you know, a neophyte bonsai artist and, and to walk into that. And, uh, Bill does very graciously put me under his wing and, uh, great, great to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, uh, a lot of those people that are still around, uh, Mark Arpeg, I, I, I became friends with Onoga was in Rochester at the time. So, uh, you know, I used to go up on the weekends and um, they had a Friday open studio that uh, Harvey Carpella, uh, Joe Noga uh, were there every time I went. And, yeah. And so that some of those fantastic trees that you're, you're seeing now were starting then. But it was when I came in, it was in full, it was in full swing. Mm-hmm. I didn't watch the infancy of, of what Bill's doing. It was in full swing. That it's really inspiring. I recognize when I was in college down in California, and that's where you and I first started meeting each other. Was at Golden State Bonsai events, and that's where I started seeing your work and uh, got a lot of exposure. Because when I was in Colorado, I was on the Western Slope, and and even at that time, Rocky Mountain Bonsai Society it was it was a club and it was doing things and primarily collecting, but it was still relatively small and isolated compared to the awareness of the bonsai. I mean, obviously the internet has made everything accessible now, but um, when I went to California and, 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 and sort of becoming aware of the momentum of bonsai culture and that Southern California, John Naka influence was, I would say tapering out as I, as I was in the early two thousands in school Mm-hmm. And and Kathy Shaner and Boone and that community in Northern California were like, I mean, the fire was burning bright, and and you could just see this these surges of activity that came with um, with these influential people, and and I I've spoken to Bill directly about it, but I think to Bill 
it seems to me it's just a matter of fact. Like, yeah, I love Bonesaw. I'm, I'm going to, and he never really slows down. Like, he's like perpetual motion in terms of the kind of energy he's infused into the Bonesaw community. But it's interesting to hear you talk about being there when things were just at full tilt and and really evolving because you're right a lot of the trees that we see now were created at that point they were started or they were yes. being built at that point in time and you were really there from the infancy now did you start making tables for them immediately or how did you integrate uh, into just, the community yeah just about bill uh, i i think lynn uh set me up <laughs> when she took me there and uh uh they both encouraged me to do this. And, uh, so, uh, you know, Bill spent a lot of time with me, uh, showing me cocoa food books and, uh, other things. And, you know, once you try building this and, uh, introducing me to people, clients, uh, and then at that time, just, uh, I would go to, I would build, uh, quite a few pieces and take 30 or 40 pieces to a convention. And, uh, try and sell them there. I, I started doing fairly fairly well doing that. Uh, it was a tough market, though. Uh, I continued to earn a living building furniture. Um, people, uh, it has really evolved. What I do and the woodworking has really evolved uh, as far as what the market will be for. Right. Uh, yeah, and at that time, uh, if if I could sell a table and it was more than a hundred dollars, it was on. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I may, I'm making these furniture pieces that, you know, it take me a week to make. And I, you know, I get $1,250. I make, I make some bonsai tables and, and take them in. And I made some nice pieces back then that were, um, you know, takeoffs of modern, like adaption from modern, uh, takeoffs of the uh, uh, out of Pokufu books, you know, kind of simpler pieces, and uh, occasionally, and and I'd have to when I look at the time I had in them, I'd have to charge you know three four hundred dollars for them. I'd have trouble selling them. Yeah, and they were nice pieces. Some of them are still around, and uh, uh, the the high end market was very small, and uh, uh, so. We started, um, I had uh, a five-person shop, at the, counting myself. And uh, so we could put out a lot of, a lot of product. And I happened to, uh, um, through Lynn's, Lynn's friend, who did Ikebana and was involved in the, uh, in, on, in the Ikebana scene on a national basis, introduced me to uh, a couple of shops where uh, one in particular, Stone Lantern in Highland, North Carolina, and uh, a man named Ralph DeVille owned it. And it was an amazing uh, business. And he ran uh, Highlands as a, uh, a resort community and summer resort community hmm. in the mountains of North Carolina. It's a big lake there. And uh, he, would, he would run 1,000, 1,200 uh, Ikebana students through his facility every summer. Wow. Wow. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. Just, Ike, he had, just yeah, Ikebana. He, yeah, just Ikebana. Well, he, he had a big shop that sold all kinds of oriental 
things, mm -hmm. you know, really high end oriental furniture, well, small furniture, jewelry, uh, artwork. Uh, it was an amazing place. And so uh, he started uh, buying my pieces on a wholesale basis. So we were able to make some production pieces for, and he bought, he liked some of the things that we used for bonsai. Uh, uh, small tables that they would put a, uh, uh, like a, a Chinese antique vase on or, or, or something to display. And he would sell these to people's homes and, uh, and he had us making a number of pieces for Ivana. And so we, we made hundreds of wow. pieces over, over a five-year period to do that. So that was part of my business. At the same time, I was making one-of-a-kind bonsai stands and tables to take to conventions because I, it was bonsai had become my hobby. So I, wanted to uh, attend the conventions and uh, from a personal standpoint and, uh, and really enjoyed it. So I had a multifaceted business at that time. So a couple of employees kind of mass produced pieces. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of those sold into the bonsai market pretty well. Um, but I still, you know, it was, the Ekabana people would pay a lot more for work than bonsai. Unbelievable! Especially that's so that's so incredible. That's a I've never I haven't I have yet to cross over to hearing Ikebana uh, practiced on that scale in in the United States. That's and, and the fact that there was a, a value system around the tables that you were making there that exceeded the bonsai community is really really interesting. Uh, it was just your dedication then to bonsai or your passion for bonsai specifically that kept you in the game then. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Very rare. Mm -hmm. I, I find that to be very rare that somebody would say, listen, I could make more money over here, but I'm going to do this just because I like it that much more. You know, Bill, Bill, um, uh, it's still, Bill has a passion for promoting bonsai in the United States as, as you well know. And, Part of his um, part of the obligation that I that I feel towards him was to also do that. Uh, so in my way, um, I contributed to the bonsai community the same way that he did. So he instilled that in so many of us. Uh, and Mark Artbeck has it big time uh, that that uh, passion and obligation to uh, promote bonsai. And, and it's just our love of it that, that's a big part of it. Uh, so um, I always felt that, uh, that obligation that uh, Bill passed this knowledge to me. And, uh, you know, he, along with that was an obligation to pass it on. And so uh, I'm pretty good at teaching. I teach a lot of bonsai, but I'm pretty good at, at starting people out, uh, beginners, and mm -hmm. getting them on the right path. And if they advance to a certain point, then saying, well, hey, no, you need to go study with somebody, you know, somebody more skilled than me. Right. And what about, what about teaching woodworking? Has that ever become something that you have had any interest in or have pursued? Um, slightly. Uh, I, when I was in Erie, 
I was interested in it somewhat. I did some seminars, some things like that. Uh, but um, here, the community is so small. Here in Vermont, the community is so small. And I just don't have the time. So I uh, had a slight interest in it. Uh, and I went through a period where, uh, so um, we were making these um, production pieces. And we were using, uh, and a lot of uh, pieces, they wanted black, like the black lacquer look. Mm -hmm. And, but it's so fragile and not, and we discovered, uh, uh, I was I doing a lot of business with Sherwin Williams, their industrial, and um, uh, finishing with the catalyzed varnish on our, our wood, natural wood pieces. Uh, at that time, which is a wonderful finish, but uh, kind of toxic. Don't do it anymore, right? <laughs> but they, uh, you know, I had this problem with, you know, the uh, we had a, a big demand for black pieces, you know, like the cheetahs and uh, like oversized cheetahs and, and odd shapes that they use in Incabana, you know, flat pieces, and they wanted them black on one side and red on the other, and the edge would be black red on one side so they could use it either sided yeah and but a lacquer is so fragile uh it just scratches when you look at it and uh so you know putting ceramic pieces on it and all it's just problematic so the the sherwin william rep uh there was a huge uh general electric locomotive factory in erie he said oh i got the solution for you and he got permission from ge they had a proprietary finished uh, this catalyzed polyurethane that they used on the locomotives. And he got permission for them for me to use this. And it was fantastic stuff. I mean, <laughs> like terrible, amazing, toxic. Once, once, once I realized how toxic it was, he stopped using it. <laughs> but it worked, but it worked incredibly. <laughs> oh, it was an amazing, amazing uh, uh, finish, you know, like I said, used on these locomotives. Bull, yeah, bullet, uh, bulletproof, basically. <laughs> oh. So, so uh, we did this for a little while and it was really successful. And, and then it, uh, uh, you know, I started getting afraid to what uh, these finishes were going to do to my health. We had, a, uh, you know, a spray booth and, and you know, food, respiratory gear and stuff, but we were blowing it. Uh, explosion proof fan that would blow it right out into the atmosphere. And uh, that was when we were starting to become more aware of uh, what we were doing, the environment. And uh, so I, I stopped doing that and uh, I just went back to other finishes. But uh, where I'm going with this is uh, about that time um, we had a, had a family tragedy and, and I had to take care of my, my, my two sons who were in high school by myself and uh, uh, traveling was my work involved quite a lot of traveling and uh, I couldn't do that. I needed to stay home. And just by chance, um, David, you know, David Bennett, uh, um, he said, Oh, you, you liked his Laurel. Uh -huh. I watched uh, the Laurel and uh, the Rosemary yeah. at the national yes. for his. And uh, so he's a, him and I founded the Great Lakes Bonsai Society together. Uh, he was a, he had a degree in fine arts. Um, 
and he's a tremendous artist. He's one of those guys, one of those artists that whatever medium he touches, yeah. would be it wood, ceramic, clay, doesn't matter. He turns it, he takes it and makes something beautiful. C- and certainly the rosemary, the rosemary display specifically was very moving at the national show. Yeah, he he uh, uh, he made the pots, he made the stands, uh, wow. you know, the the whole thing. Yeah. And uh, anyway, he founded Flex Cut Tool Company. Oh. Are you familiar with the carving tools? Yes, of course. Yeah, the palm gouge, palm gouges, like that was the original. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so he founded that. And he used to come over and use my spray booth to spray the handles. And him and I were really close friends at the time. And I watched him going from making these things in his barn to having a factory with 20-some employees, probably hundreds of thousands of these tools a year all over the world. And shortly after, I was when I was trying to reinvent myself and try to figure out how to do my business without traveling. He walked into my shop one morning and offered me a a job of uh, operations manager running his business. Wow. And, uh, it, oh, and and the offer, the financial end of the offer was great. I had one son about to go into college and, uh, the other one in high school. And, uh, it was almost too good to be true. It's just, you know, I'm agonizing trying to figure out how to stay home and still run my business at the same time. And uh, so I, I became operations manager and then general manager there for a company. And so I stopped woodworking for a while mm. uh, on my own. And uh, uh, that was a great experience. His, his uh, you know, he's, like I said, he has a degree in fine arts and that was consuming him. So he, he looked to me to run the day-to-day stuff. So the, the business was consuming him. He couldn't do any artwork. Yeah. And he wanted, you know, he wanted to be able to do more of that. The day-to-day was just overwhelming with 20 employees. And so uh, I started doing that. And that allowed him to invent new tools and, and do that. And then he, he gradually started to doing uh, – uh, wood sculptures again, mm. selling them to galleries, selling them through galleries. And, uh, then he decided he was having so much fun at that that he decided to retire and sold the business. Uh, and uh, I was I was uh, at the same time offered a job for another startup uh, from another bonsai friend of ours in Erie for uh, to run the factory at his business, which would make custom medical lighting, uh, like hospitals, uh, um, patient room stuff, doctor's offices. Uh, and that I ran, I worked there and ran that factory for a couple of years and, uh, it, it was financially rewarding, you know, but just stress job. I mean, you, you're, uh, managing, uh, you'd have an order for, you know, 180 of these really complex light examination fixtures. And they were going to go into a hospital and they had to be delivered on a certain date mm. because they built a new hospital. And uh, if it didn't open, there's huge money involved. So there's huge fines uh, if you're late, you know, $1,000 a day type of thing. And and so there was incredible pressure on, on me and the factory to make sure that everything went smoothly, 
you're you're juggling multiple orders and uh so i did that wrote the last tuition check for my son my youngest son i'm going back to woodworking nice <laughs> nice nice yeah. wow and uh, and uh, so uh, uh you know that that was uh, uh lucrative uh, uh but it, it got me through that period of uh of getting my my sons educated and uh through college and uh uh, but then I, I was able to re, uh, come back into the, and that was probably in 2009 or 10. Okay. Just about the time that I met you, um, I had just re-entered the bonsai community and, and, the, and woodwork and started woodworking again. Right. I was just shortly before I met you. Yeah. And so I had a, uh, oh yeah, eight year period where I didn't do work. Yeah, well, I had no, you know, so that's interesting. I, I really, you know, I, I really never quite understood because I'd met you. I thought I met you in the early 2000s, 2000, 2001 at GSBF or 2000 in that, oh, possibly, in, in that yeah. period of time because yeah. that's when I was in college. Then I, then I went to Japan uh, and coming back in 2010, you were re-entering as I was, as I was freshly entering uh, the bonsai right. realm. Wow! 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 That makes so much sense now. Man, had to take had to take a time out to be a dad. And and it, when it when I re-entered, it had changed. Oh, and, I bet. Uh, and that was when uh, people people wanted higher quality. Uh, uh, Boone, Kathy Shaner, you, uh, Bill on the East Coast. There's so many people on the East Coast that. Um, yeah, uh, exhibitions, plays in the conventions uh, went up several notches yeah. while I was away. Yeah, and when I came back in, then there was a market for uh, uh, higher end pieces. And did you? And when you came back in, you so when you stepped away from woodworking due to the travel, you had four or five people in your studio. Uh, working when you came back in, you just came back in as a as as sort of a solo operation. Yes, and and the uh, reason being, and I have plenty of business to have employees, but after running those factories, ah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, never again, right, right. No, it was like, oh no, that no, and, and uh, it, it's uh, from a personal standpoint. Uh, every once in a while, I have to laugh. You know, I had to be so organized there. I had, you know, I I was part of the quoting process of, of, from A to Z. You know, so, you know, I had to I had to know how many man hours it would take to do this. And just as an operations manager, you have to be so organized. And I was, which uh, really is against my nature. But I I was pretty good at it uh, if I applied myself. But I didn't want to, and so when I had, when I went back, uh, I swung the, the pendulum the other way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when, I, when I started out, I was totally disordered. I could see my shop. It's, it's, it's uh, I know where everything is, but you walk in here and it's like, oh my goodness! You had to, and, uh, you just had to, you just had to let go. You had to turn loose yeah, a little bit. I had bit. to let go of that from a from a personal sanity standpoint. Yeah. You know, just, uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Very interesting. And so, 
So what took you to where you're at now in Vermont then? Because you've been through this, you know, this, this shift, 2010, you come back in, things are changed. You have more or less, it sounds like woodworking was what you wanted, what you aspired to get back to just as a love and a passion. Yeah. And, and, and you're making active choices not to try and, have it be as lucrative as possible, but just to have it be as as sort of soulful as possible for for what you're right. trying to do. I mean, where does Vermont come into that? Um, well, I met uh, you know my I'm, I'm a widow from my first marriage, and I met Kathy in 2010 at a in the Adirondacks. Uh, my present wife mm-hmm. and uh, um, I met Kathy at a wedding in in the Adirondacks. And uh, we started dating, a long-distance uh, dating short, shortly after that. Uh, she was in New Jersey. I'm in Erie, Pennsylvania. And after a couple of years of that, we were getting tired of it. We realized we loved each other. We wanted to get married. I didn't want to live in metropolitan New York area, you know, the New, northern New Jersey. She didn't want to live in Erie, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> We both, where, where we met on so many of our, our dates was uh, the Adirondacks. Uh-huh. Um, she had a, like a timeshare up there and we would meet. And uh, she's, uh, there's a, a group called the 46ers. There's 46 um, high peaks in the Adirondacks over uh, 4,000 feet. There were four to 5,000 feet. And uh, she, had, uh, she had climbed one that just before I met her and it, she was determined to do this. So we used to meet up there and, uh, over a long weekend and, and climb a couple of them, you know, summit a couple of the mountains and we both love the mountains. Um, but when we decided to get married, we both sold our homes and said we're going to move north. And we didn't want to, the, the only thing in the, we didn't want to live in, in isolation. Uh, the only, but the only town of any size is like Placid in the Adirondacks. And it's a real tourist town. We didn't want to live in a tourist. So uh, we were looking around up here, and I had done a lot of work for uh, a house on Lake Champlain, owned by somebody in Philadelphia, and so I was familiar with uh, uh, this area of Vermont. And she had grown up skiing up here, and uh, her family would come up to own. And just by chance, we we uh, decided to check this area out as a possibility to move to, and we fell in love with Waterbury. It's a little town, fifteen hundred people. It's kind of a crossroads. There's uh, four major ski areas within thirty minutes. Wow! But it's not a tourist town. It, it, there's a fair amount of tourism, um, but it's not dominated as a as a just strictly a tourist town. Mm-hmm. The ski areas around us are. So uh, we we fell in love with it. We found a, a home here. We're uh, on top of this hill. It's uh, forested. There's uh, the top of the top of the hill that's uh, uh, cleared of the forest for our home site. My shop is 75 feet from the garage door. Uh, 360 views of the mountains. Uh, I'm looking outside. It's magnificent American beach right now. You were asking about the fall earlier, and so the maples have uh, lost their leaves. You know, we have this, we have uh, a leaf 
tourism here. Right. Right. Oh, the leaf, the leaf keepers. And uh, it's actually our busiest tourist season in the fall. Wow. And so that just, that just ended. It starts mid September, goes into October. And uh, so uh, the maples now uh, have lost their leaves, but the oaks are this purple color uh, this year. And uh, I'm looking out at, over top of the computer. There's a beach that is out here. It is absolutely magnificent right now. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, uh, email you a picture of it. it yes, please it do. Is, it is. Um, it was only about four inches in diameter when we, when we bought this place in 2013. It's probably 15 inches in diameter now and about 35, 40 feet high. Jeez. And, but the, the color in it, it is out at the, the top and the branch tips are copper. That copper that beach gets when the leaves burn uh, most of it is this brilliant gold color but the interior leaves that are shaded are still lime green oh wow just amazing and so uh, people uh you know with the, they uh criticize this season the stick season that uh, all the leaves have fallen and, but there's still so much beauty in the uh, and th- this this beach is more beautiful when the leaves are off of it the structure of it's uh, uh, yeah, it's it's a marvelous place to live. We have beach, uh, three kinds of maple: the, the sugar maple, silver maple, red maple, uh, hack, uh, hornbeam, oak, ash, mulberry, uh, huge white pines here, uh, poplars, mm. white birch. Wow, very diverse. I, I, I really, uh, I had no idea. I had no idea. I've always wanted, it's a bucket list item to come up there and see the fall colors. I don't want to be called a leaf peeper, though. <laughs> I don't want, I don't, I don't want, I don't, I don't want to be called a leaf peeper, but I want to see, the, I want to see the fall colors. <laughs> uh, well, uh, you know, you, you probably won't, won't come on a bus with 40 other people, so I'm, we won't call you a leaf peeper. <laughs> I'm going to try to avoid that at all costs, at all costs. If I could just, you know, subtly blend in, that would be, that would, that would yeah. be very, very well, rewarding. Well, there's a open invitation. We have an extra bedroom. Anytime you want to come, bring yeah. your son, uh, Unbelievable. Um, I will take you up on that. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, please <laughs> so do. I did, yeah. I did just kind yeah. of invite myself. Uh, but I appreciate <laughs> that. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so, so you reintegrate in 2010, you relocate. And I remember the relocation to Vermont was kind of a, that was a process to, to move the shop and, and sort of move yeah. life. Yeah. I moved, I moved uh, three times in 18 months. Oh, gosh. Uh, my, my, machinery, the shop. Or, um, so my home sold first in Erie and Kathy's home needed a little bit of work. So it was big and there was a huge a basement area. So we said, okay, well, I'll sell my home first. I'll come down. I'll move to New Jersey. Uh, we'll get this work done in your house and sell it um, in the spring. Uh, so I moved there, set up my shop, got back to work, um, did her and her father, her father and I, uh, finished up the work on her home to get it ready to sell. Uh, when we first decided to move to Waterbury, we couldn't find a property we wanted to buy, but we found a rental home 
that had a existing woodworking shop. Mm. All I had to do was roll my machinery in and plug it in. All the electrical, everything was, it was amazing. Wow. A 20 by 24 foot shop. It was just tailor made for me. Uh, so, um, and then shortly after that, a pro- this, this property came up for sale. And uh, so we bought it, mm-hmm. uh, bought this property. And, and was the shop already there on that property or did you build your no, shop? No, I, uh, it was just a home. Uh-huh. And uh, so uh, while I was still working in the other uh, uh, shop, uh, we have this shop, my shop built here. So it's brand new, built to my specs, small, uh, uh, um, you know, one-man shop. I don't need much room. And what I found before was no matter how big my shop was, I would just buy more stuff and fill it up. Right. Right. Yes. <laughs> you know, if I, if I had the space, I was going to fill it up with something that I, maybe I didn't need. Yep. And so this forces me to be more efficient. And uh, I love that. I love that. Actually, <laughs> when I was in Japan, the biggest impression that I got from living in Japan was uh, I don't need a whole lot to exist. And uh, the smaller the place, the less room I have to fill it with crap. So uh, coming back to the United States, my criteria was small when I was shopping mm-hmm. for a place. Small house, hopefully big property. And that's really what led me to Mirai because it was just a 750 square foot cabin and and five acres. And I was like, that that's that that is that works for me and continues <laughs> to continues to have felt like the right decision. But definitely trying to re- reduce the amount of space that I can fill up is is a wise move for me because I, I have a tendency to collect a lot of stuff. <laughs> I, yeah. I have far well, too many here. trees at Mariah. <laughs> far too many trees. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The same here. Yeah. yeah. And we're just about to put our trees away. And, uh, uh, you know, so most m- mostly we have uh, uh, things that we've collected here. Most of our collection is. And if not, it's relatively hardy things. And uh, so we have two winter storage areas and right now uh, on the verge of having to put more away, we have taken azaleas and that in and uh, in, you know, the in and out uh, thing. And, uh, so soon we'll have to, and it's a, it's a shoehorn every year trying to get everything into, into space, but, uh, yeah. but it works. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, we are we are weeks away from making the big first move to the greenhouse for all of the frost sensitive stuff. Uh, and I always <clears throat> fall has historically been a, a, a season of sadness for me because I have a hard time letting go. This year with the heat and <laughs> just uh, 20, 2021 has been a whopper. We have major cold, major heat. We have the vandalism. We have we've had a lot at Mirai this year. The fall has been like a uh, like a washing of the window almost, you know, like just sort of wiping away this uh, <laughs> th- th- this uh, constant catastrophic scenario. And I'm really excited to to load the greenhouse up because we were finally able to finish and. Some of what I marvel at with you is you continue to make some of the highest quality stands in North America, but it sounds like you've been building constantly, kind of nonstop for a long time, moving, doing, changing, shifting, adapting, adjusting. Kudos to you, David. Kudos to you to continue to raise the level of what you do under such tremendous flux. Uh, yeah, that's amazing. That's a, a real testament to uh, your spirit and durability because that is a lot. That's a lot to ask of somebody. 
Well, well thank you. Uh, you know, back to 2010, when I started doing it again, uh, um, it, it was interesting because I came back in with the mindset of, of okay, well, I need to keep, keep things affordable. I, I didn't see it at right away how much the market had changed. And um, with my manufacturing background, um, you know, I'm always searching for ways to be more efficient or ways to uh, make things more efficiently to keep the cost down. And some of those, some of those uh, things were successful and some of them got in the way of good design and, and, and making good pieces. And it was like slowly uh, I came to the realization of, oh no, people were willing to pay for that extra quality. Mm-hmm. And it took, it took me a few years to, to realize that. So I made some pieces back then that um, were, were usable and they still show up. Some of them were in this past national and that's like, Oh, do, I do so much better now. Mm, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> but I, I, I uh, so I gradually um, you know, became uh, aware that that the market was there for higher end pieces, and it, it's attention to detail, and uh, detail takes time, and they just need to have to be able to charge for it. So it's not like I, I'm making more money on an eight hundred dollar piece than I am on a four hundred dollar piece. Uh, it's just that I put more time into it, and. Uh, but the market is there now. I'm very fortunate uh, of, of being in the right place at the right time, um, meeting um, so many people that have helped me. You mentioned Boone. Boone's been great to me. Uh, he sends the students to me. And also, uh, he's comfortable speaking uh, my work. Um, and he's helped a lot. Uh, you have helped a lot. Uh, Kathy Painter. Uh, so much. I, the list goes on and on. Yeah. Um, people that have helped. The, the community is so, so uh, giving. Uh, so many people have helped. So, it, it, the- it, it all, you know, coming back from Japan and, and the bonsai community, Sarah Rayner and Ron Lang and, and, and sort of this, this expansion of ceramics and, um, yourself and Austin Heitzman and Jason Eider and uh, and you know uh, a handful of other stand makers came along and it's like um, the interesting thing about bonsai to me is the tree as much as the tree leads the dance and we've even toyed with that with like the Pacific uh, Bonsai Museum's lab project where where we reverse engineered the process where Austin made a stand and pot and tree mm-hmm. and Rod made a pot stand and tree and uh you know the 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 level of everybody the level of everybody the level of the ceramicists the re- level of the field growers the level of the collectors the level of the bonsai professionals the level of the stand makers the level of the i really feel like context and venue have also you know leveled up you look at uh what's the show he the national show exhibition in uh what, where is that canapolis or annapolis or something uh, uh, uh canapolis starts with a k it's, yeah it's right outside of charlotte yeah and and the venue there is just stunning, just stunning it's, as a contextual backdrop to the presentation of bonsai. It has been, um, it's been, we've been on a little bit of a rocket ship trajectory 
po- mm-hmm. post uh, you know uh, economic downturn recession the the springboard effect of that at least uh, what I, you know what what it's felt like to me and what it seems is is observable has been really inspiring to to oh, witness yeah. You know, and and that's and it just rings through every single branch and arm and artery of the bonsai practice that we've seen that exponential growth. And I don't know, you know, I don't know if we're gonna if we're if we're leveling off or you know if there's a a, a period when you see that growth that you really kind of have to take all of that gain, if you will, of information, inspiration, uh, technique, and expansion, and and really kind of let that marinate it seems like refine it work with it mature it there's going to be you know some attrition after that kind of big bulk growth phase as you see this happen in these different regions across north america but um the level certainly that it's elevated to has been assisted greatly by your work uh and, and that is very very clear to see in exhibitions across the country well thank you thank you yeah. i i try and uh uh, and and I, I, there's quite a few people that, that do this. Uh, every day I walk into my shop, I try and do it better. What I, whatever I'm doing, I try and, okay, how can I make this better? What can I do? I, I'll start out with a working drawing of the piece I'm going to make. And a lot of times I'm making pieces, uh, particularly with, with shell-in stands. Uh, I make a lot of those. And uh, uh, and I've refined them over the years. And if I'm making something similar, I'll pull out the last uh, working drawing I I did of, of that piece. And I'll have made notes, uh, you know, I'll put it on there uh, over on the side. Next time, uh, change this proportion or next time, uh, you know, do this joinery differently. And so as I'm making a piece, I'm, I'm critiquing it and saying, well, how can I make that better? Uh, how can I? Because proportion is just so important. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, in those little details. And, uh, yeah. And uh, I'm about just about to uh, go uh, on Thursday. We're going to buy, buy wood in, uh, in central Maine. And uh, it's a Me- Mexico, Maine. It is <laughs> this middle of, middle of nowhere. And like Paris, and Tennessee. Just. just uh, Somebody introduced me to this place. Uh, somebody local here in Vermont introduced me to this place, and so I finally went out there, and it's unbelievable uh, the amount of rare hardwoods in this in this series of warehouse buildings. It's just unbelievable. Um, there, uh, uh, it was a, a gentleman from South Africa, and he decided him and his wife decided to get out of there. Uh, I guess. Maybe because of the, the the racial struggles, right? And uh, he relocated, and he was he had a very successful, and it still exists. His son runs it in South Africa. A very successful woodworking businesses there, five locations, lumber, high end lumber yard type of facilities, and uh, um, so he relocated up here and just brought in massive amount of Indian rosewood, African rosewood, and uh, ebony, and just, and their main business now, he passed away a few years ago, but uh, his son still owns it and runs it from South Africa, and they have a longtime manager in there, 
And their main volume is in uh, uh, curly maple and you know, uh, bird's eye maple and uh, ash. And uh, so they do their big volume in that. Uh, there's not, they don't have much of a market for all these exotic hardwoods they have. Mm. And uh, we go up there and uh, sometimes I'll, I'll go up every three or four months. Sometimes a pile hasn't, you know, of Indian rosewood hasn't been touched since the last time I was there. And it's just incredible, the quality. And uh, a lot of it's been in, in there for 10 or 20 years. Wow. And so um, I'm reached a, a point now where I get so much business. So uh, I have about five or six months worth of work orders right now. And so I kind of accumulated them and uh, over the past couple of months. And so I'll go up and purchase the wood for those projects. And, you know, I'll have a project list and I can go in and select. They, they give me the run of the place. I can go in and move, you know, if I, they'll, they'll break open bundles for me or move things. And uh, uh, so I can go in and select the wood for um, individual projects and, uh, make sure that it's, you know, cons uh, consistent. And so what I like to do is, uh, uh, and this is part of the quality thing is, um, you know, you've probably experienced this where you have a kind of a large, a large board. A lot of these boards might be oh, 10 inches wide. And I use a lot of six quarter inch and a half thick wood uh, fit into the sizes and I can use it efficiently. And, so when you start sawing out framing parts out of that big board that are going to end up being like an inch and a half by uh, five eighths or, or three quarters of an inch thick, uh, sometimes they'll go wonky on you. Right. You know, you've experienced this where you're slicing something off and it twists and turns and bows. And, right. And uh, so uh, I'll, uh, uh, I do, I can do my best work when I have the time to, um, uh, bring in those boards, lay out, okay, the, my parts list, and so rough, rough those boards out oversized. Rough, excuse me. Rough out the pieces out of the board oversized. Let them do their, I'll sticker them out, put them on a shelf, uh, let them sit for four to six weeks, and let them do their twisting and turning. Also, let the moisture level acclimate to my shop and, uh, get balanced within the board. Uh, then I'll mill it down to final size. And you end up with a part that's flat, square, stable. And it's not going to, it's already done the stress relief and it's already done its moisture change. And uh, uh, one, of the, one of the things that happens with uh, uh, when you're buying lumber or like that is it's been kiln dried to maybe six or 8%. But then here in the summer, uh, a board will, uh, if the warehouse is unheated or unair conditioned in the summer, it'll grab moisture out of the air. And so we're fairly humid here. And it might, the outer part of the board might be 11 or 12% moisture content. The inside of the board is still 7%. So when you saw, start sawing those parts out, you don't have a balance of yeah. moisture. And the shrinking, you know all about the shrinking and swelling of, of wood. And that's, that's what good 
woodworking is all about is understanding that and uh, and then working with that, you know, work, working with when, what the parameters the wood gives you. Species are different. So uh, when I uh, when I go there, the wood's fairly stable because it's um, it's been sitting there so long, it's even throughout the board. Even though it was probably kiln dried 10, 15 years ago, just 7%, uh, it slowly pulled in the moisture. So when I go to a place where the uh, uh, big turnover, uh, I have a local place here where I'll buy walnuts and, and the local hardwoods. And uh, I have that problem of, of the outside of the board being 12% and the inside of the board being 7%. And see, so it, it's uh, uh, more difficult to use the wood well. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm about to, this is really exciting for us. My friend with a pickup truck, we go and pick a day <laughs> about three hours away. So I'm, all, I'm sitting here today, this morning, writing my lists out. Okay, I need this for this order. And uh, uh, so, and, and I love uh, part of the, my, I don't know why, but I love that laying out the, the parts, you know, taking these boards laying out, okay, these are the parts I need. I need this for panels. I need this for, you know, frame the framing. I need this for the posts. And, uh, uh, you know, utilizing the grain and the bits. Uh, that, that's one of the things that I'm not sure why that I enjoy so much in, in, in my job. Oh, man. So fascinating. So the way that David Niddle parties is you go to Mexico, Maine. Yeah. yeah that, there you that's, go. that's how you party. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So good, David. I got to let you go, man. And I got to get out of here too. But I um, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us out of your little slice of paradise. And uh, it's, I, it's pretty exciting that we caught you on a day where you're laying out sort of the next round of work that we're going to see from you over the course of, you know, the, ne the next however many exhibitions in North America where these pieces sit underneath beautiful trees. But um but one thing's for sure is it's been a pleasure to work together and watch you evolve and evolve together. It's it's really been something, and uh, and I think uh, you know the the future looks bright in terms of continued evolution because it sounds to me like you're just getting warmed up. Yeah, I, I am. Um, I don't you know I don't see any end in sight to the growth of this. It, uh, just being at the last national, uh, the excitement levels there. We'll get past this COVID thing and get back to normal. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah, it's there. Yeah. It's there. People are ready for it. I, I totally agree with you, and uh, and hopefully when the when the handcuffs are off and things are things are back to a place where everybody feels good about it, uh, we'll really see that next level of uh, trajectory angle up again. Because I think it's I think the parts and pieces are in place. Yeah. Well, hey, it's a pleasure talking to you too. Uh, always enjoy it. Uh, uh, it's, uh, didn't see you for three years and now here I see you for twice in a month. Love it. And, uh, I know, I know. I'll, 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 t I'll take advantage of it every moment, uh, that I get. And, um, uh, yeah, again, just thanks for making the time and keep doing what you're doing. We'll stay in touch and, and, and see you sometime soon. Okay. Take All care. right, David, take care, man. Bye. Bye.